All right, y'all. So we are uh, coming up on the finish line of Big Enough Story, and uh, we are in Act 5. We're looking at God's plan to recreate all that was originally created in Act 1 and how he uses ordinary people like you and me and the church uh, as wounded and as imperfect as the church is, God uses it in order to move things toward his intended end for the world. And last time we were here, we talked about this idea that God's kingdom is both now and not yet. We'll continue looking at how that fleshes out theologically in August. Um, But the idea for now is simply that God's will, God's rule for the world is breaking into our world. It began at Easter. Jesus is, is moving into the world. His kingdom is spreading in the world, and yet there are places where we do not yet see that in full. And so we sit in the middle of the now and the not yet, and we trust that one day God's will will happen in full, but we're not fully there yet. And that we actually then, uh, I guess the opportunity there, the invitation there, is that we have a role to play in moving history toward its final end. Uh, We have a meaningful part to contribute in the shaping of all things as God moves them toward his eternal future. But we don't always know what to do. We don't always know what to prioritize. It's not always clear. Uh, In fact, if there's one thing I would love for the American church, it is simply the acknowledgement that it's just not always as clear as we think it is, as we want it to be. And so we have to trust in uh, the Holy Spirit, which is given at Pentecost, right, to guide us into truth, to help us discern. Uh, And so we ask questions like, how do I bring my life into alignment with God's purposes? And how do we know what we're aiming for? And so we've uh, been sitting with the early church in the book of Acts with that question, seeing how they respond to those now we're going to look to a totally different place to try to answer that question, how do we know what we're aiming for? We're gonna to turn to the book of Revelation. And uh, the book of Revelation, if you can imagine, like when we're talking about Act 5, the uh, story of the early church in Acts is one bookend of Act 5. Revelation is the other bookend of Act 5. And then we're living in these pages right in the middle of those two. And our pages feel a lot of times unwritten, or at least as, as less clearly written as I would prefer them to be. And so we're looking to these bookends to try to make sense of what do we do as we improv God's story on the fly in our daily life. And so for the last uh, few months, we've been looking at Acts, we've been looking at the example of the early church, and now we skip all the way to Revelation to get a glimpse of what is the revelation of God. What is the revelation of what God is wanting to do in the world? And uh, I don't know what your experience is with the book of Revelation, but it is a difficult, complex, challenging book. And so I want to start by saying a couple of core ideas about Revelation. We'll get deeper into it really in August, so today's a bit of uh, an introduction. Um, And so I wanna say a few critical things, and the first is this, that Revelation is not primarily about the end of the world, but about God's desired ends for the world. Uh, There is uh, a difference between the end and the intended ends, right? And so the means of God will lead to the ends of God. 
that God's purposes for the world. And so when we look at Revelation, we're not merely looking at the finale of the story. We're looking at the telos of God's story. We're looking at the aim that God has been pointing his world toward, the target of God's arrow of creation that, that, that it's bending toward as God brings all things to his intended end. And so this is about the consummation and the, the completion of all things. And it tells us in Revelation that what God currently has stored in heaven is one day going to wed with our world. And when that happens, all things will be made new again. And so this gives us glimpses of how we can anticipate and then participate with God's plans to heal creation. And then secondly, uh, uh, Revelation is, uh, is less like a cipher or a code to crack. It's more like a collage. And so when we look at Revelation, we have these beautiful images of how God is at work in the world, and yet what we've tended to do with Revelation is make it this mysterious code to be cracked. You all have seen these books, you've heard this radio station when you're driving through Kansas, flipping through AM radio, and, uh, and it's entertaining, but boy, it's confusing, right? The, the code to crack, to make sense of what God's going to do at the end of all things. Um, I wanna say that Revelation is not a book about wild end time predictions. It is not about bizarre beasts or scary raptures or who is going to be left behind. In fact, a lot of that is modern day theological invention that you cannot find in the church fathers and mothers. Uh, And so there is something else going on here. And the way I like to imagine it is that Revelation is like a puzzle box, right? Uh, If you get just really zoomed in on one particular part, one particular verse, one particular symbol or image, then it's hard to make sense of what's going on. But if you zoom out and you take it as a whole and you see the picture as a whole, you actually get clarity on the whole picture of what is going on here. It reveals a picture. What it is is a picture of this redemptive, victorious, inviting, healing, cruciform king that is at the center of the image. And that's what the collage shows us. And Revelation is chock full of image-saturated speech. Um, We tend to do violence to it by trying to make it a literary genre that it is not, right? We try to make it say something that we can understand about the future. But this is symbol. This is imagery. And when you're talking about symbol and imagery, you have to look beyond the words to the deeper truth that those words are pointing us to, right? Like if I were to say to you that the the donkeys and the elephants are at odds with one another on the hill, well, that means something to us. But 2,000 years from now, if somebody were to read that, they're like, there's donkeys and there's elephants, there's some big hill. If I were to say the Patriots and the Falcons went to war for the Super Bowl, right? I mean, think about those words absent their context. There's a giant bull, there's patriots, there's apparently huge falcons that are swooping in. This doesn't make any, this is what's going on in Revelation. We're reading this image-saturated language, a lot of times absent the deep context to make sense of it, and so we have to really read it responsibly so that we don't end up with bizarre, wild predictions that are not actually what the text is trying to say. We don't want to do violence to the intent and the point of the book. And so there's this language that's encoded with deep cultural meaning, and rather than look at it literally, we want to look at it to see the deeper truth that's actually deeper than a literal meaning may be. And that's actually happening in Scripture a lot. Uh, A lot of times the deepest reading is beyond the literal, uh, or in addition to the literal. 
Um, in John's case, the language that he has, even though he's using all this language that's, that's image-saturated, it still is not sufficient to describe what he's saying. There's 80 times in Revelation where he goes, it's like this, or it's as if this, right? It's like he still can't quite find the language to describe what he's saying. His voice was like a trumpet blast, or his eyes were like flames of fire. His voice sounded like waters, you know? Like, this is, this is deeper than, than the words we have. And so then, Revelation enhances our imagination about God's future, not our information about God's future. Um, I mean, there's some information, too, but primarily what God's doing, I think, is, is blowing up our imaginations. Revelation literally means apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalypse. And the apocalypse is not about the end times. It literally means to unveil something. It is about a revelation it is literally an epiphany. It is the veil lifted so that what was hidden is laid bare or made naked. It is a lens so that what could not be seen before can now be seen clearly. This is what Paul means when he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see in full. And so what is unveiled in Revelation is less about end time events finally. It is about God's essence. It's about the cross. What is revealed is Jesus. The revelation is a revelation of Jesus. It's given to seven small struggling churches going through a difficult period in human history. They're under the, the thumb of Roman rule. Martyrdom is a very real possibility. Emperor worship is on the rise. The politics of the day were such that you had to swear your allegiance to the politics, the political powers, or else, and the church is scared. And so John is given these letters from Jesus to be read to seven small, struggling churches, very ordinary churches, churches just like ours. The churches are called the lampstands. And over and over we get this idea that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. And I find that to be beautiful, to think that when we gather in a room like this, Jesus is walking amongst us. He knows, in fact, that's what it says over and over, I know about this, I know about this about your church, I know about this about your church. What does Jesus say I know about? About us. He knows the things that we're going through. And he stands in the middle of the church, he is not absent, he is with us. It also means we can't take Jesus without taking the church. Because Jesus has wed himself to the, the church, he's with the lampstands, he's not going away in the lampstands. And so Revelation's intended to provide hope to these churches. Here's how the letter starts in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that, first and foremost. The revelation is of Jesus Christ. That is what is being revealed. Which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the witness of Jesus Christ, including all that John saw. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace and peace, not fear and doom. Grace and peace to you from the one who was, uh, who is and was and is coming and from the seven spirits that are before God's throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, which is to imply the first but not the last who will rise from the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, which is to imply that Jesus is the one who rules over Rome, right? This is political, subversive language. To the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and always. Amen. And so the revelation starts with this phrase 
and it comes up five times in the book of Revelation. It's basically a, uh, a, a reminder, a, a mantra. It's this thing that keeps coming up over and over in Revelation, and it's these words that this is the one who is and who was and who is coming. It's got this glaring grammatical error in the Greek. Uh, like if you read it, it is like speech that actually is out of order in the way it's written, which is probably John's way of saying pay attention to this. Like I'm intentionally messing this up to make it not quite make sense so that you have to stop and think about it. And he says that God is the one who is and who was and who is coming. And yes, God is the one who has come. And yes, God is the one who will come again, but also God is the one right now who is always presently coming. Right? That's what God does. He comes to find his children. When God's people screw up and they're wandering naked and ashamed around the garden, God comes to them. When God's people need reconciliation and a fresh understanding of who God is, Jesus comes to us. When God's people need empowerment and they're feeling unsure about how to live in the world in the light of resurrection, God sends his Holy Spirit to us like all the time. And in every way, he says, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. I am coming to you. And I wonder if we might reflect on like, how is God coming to me in the middle of my story and in the confusion and in the despair, and through the birds, and through the blue sky, and through the heartache. Maranatha is the cry of revelation, which means, oh Lord, come, come to us, right? And Jesus responds, the final words of scripture, behold, I am coming soon, right? Jesus is always coming to us. I wanna give us two pictures uh, that to sit with today that to me stand out as the starting points of what's revealed in Revelation about Jesus, about the lion and the lamb, to use the symbolic language that Revelation uses. And uh, we've often been told, and it is true, that Jesus' death conquered the sin problem, and his resurrection conquered the death problem. Right, I've been saying for months now, sin and death are the two great enemies of God's story. Sin and death are the two great enemies of God's story. So Jesus died and it conquered the sin problem. Jesus rose and it conquered the death problem. We've often heard that and it's true. We've often heard and it's true that on the cross, Jesus did something to heal us and to change everything. And then on top of that, Revelation gives us this new wrinkle this new piece of information, this new way of thinking about this that we have not heard before, and I think it's absolutely pivotal to understanding the Christian life. And it comes amidst a lot of that symbolic language, so for our purposes here today, I'm just gonna ask you to ignore that symbolic language and pay attention to the final part of this verse. Here's what it says in Revelation 13:8. It says, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. What? From the creation of the world, the lamb was slain? When the world was created, there was no sin problem and there was no death problem. Why is the lamb already slain? And it seems like John is seeing something that is essential about who Jesus is that the cross is not something Jesus just did. The cross is a revelation of who Jesus is and always has been since before the world began. 
Jesus is cross-shaped. Jesus is cruciform. Jesus is others-oriented. Jesus is suffering. Jesus is laying himself down for the sake of all else. This is not just Jesus' work in the world. This is Jesus' essence in the world. Jesus is always cruciform. If someone were to ask the question, when was Jesus crucified? You might say AD 33, and in a sense you'd be correct, but you might say, before God ever said, let there be light, and you'd be correct. You'd be correct at an even deeper level, because before the creation of the world, the lamb was already slain. And I think what it means for us is that this is how power always works in God's kingdom. It's always cross-shaped always suffering on behalf of another. This is what was before the beginning and after the end of the world, both before the beginning and after the end of the world, is a wounded and healing God. It is the central image of the entire scriptures. And so if we want to be Christ-like then, we must more and more learn to take on this posture in our way of being in the world. This is how leadership works in God's kingdom. It's how relationships work in God's kingdom. It's how politics work in God's kingdom. It's how economics work in God's kingdom. Jesus is always giving of himself for the sake of another. He always reigns from the cross. And so Jesus is slain right from the start of the big enough story. He's already wounded. But then this is our final image for today. Revelation 5, 1 through 6. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. It had a writing on the front and the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. So I began to weep and weep, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. What's going on in this picture that John is seeing is he sees this scroll and this scroll outlines God's purposes for the world. It's completely filled up on both sides in writing. There's nothing else that can be added to it. This is the full story. This is the good news story of how the world will be fulfilled and healed. And it's sitting right there, but it's sealed. And no one can open it. No one can make sense of it. This is the good news story, the big enough story, but no one can crack it open. And so John begins to weep and weep, but then he's told, do not weep because a lion has conquered and made a way for this story to make its way into the world. The lion can implement the plan. The lion of Judah is worthy to take the story and see it to its fulfillment. And John turns and expects to see a roaring lion, but instead his eyes see a lamb who is slain. And yet, the lamb is slain, but standing. And it doesn't make sense to us. You cannot be slain and standing at the same time. But this is how Jesus is in the world. It's the central image of God. And the spotlight shines on the throne 
that is at the center of the universe. This whole passage is, is like we're sitting in the giant amphitheater of all creation and there's all these creatures and all these angels and all these ones and then in the center is the lamb sitting on the throne and it is a, a, a lamb who has died and yet is upright as if arisen. And the lamb takes the good news story and opens it and the whole stadium breaks out in spontaneous song to a king who was and is and is to come in his unending kingdom of life upon life, world without end. And that's where the scriptures point us. So Jesus, as we begin sitting in these final few weeks of this big story with how your story ends, would you awaken our imaginations to see how in your wisdom you have deemed that the secret key to all history is a slain but standing lamb. And would you help us to wrestle with what that means for our lives and how we show up to others and how we make sense of how to live and what to do and who to be in this world. And would you send a letter to each of us in this church? Would you walk amongst the lampstand of this church? And would you, at the end of all things, save our story by doing what no one else can do? By opening up a story of redemption and leading us into life. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.